Okay, it's time for our main message. <clears throat> and if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 17 as we continue our look at the transfiguration of Christ. We've had three weeks of this already, and we are now on our fourth uh, installment of this. And we are looking at uh, towards the end. I did uh, say at a young, uh, to our young adults uh, the other night that I'd be looking at um, Moses and Elijah during the tribulation period and how they will be coming back again. But in hindsight, I actually uh, had a look at it again. I really want to focus on John the Baptist today. So we'll have a look at that one today. And then next week, we're going to have um, Moses and Elijah and the role they're going to be playing in the future. All right, Matthew chapter 17, uh, verses 9 to 13 this morning, as we look at the the final portion of this passage that we've been uh, examining over the last few weeks. Matthew 17, verse 9 says, And as they came down from the mountain, Jesus charged them, saying, Tell the vision to no man until the Son of Man be risen again from the dead. And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then say the scribes that Elias must first come? And Jesus answered and said unto them, Elias truly shall first come and restore all things. But I say unto you that Elias has come already. And they knew him not, but have done unto him whatsoever they listed. Likewise shall also the Son of Man suffer of them. Then the disciples understood that he spake unto them of John the Baptist. Let's, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer and commit this time to him. Father, we do thank you once again for uh, this morning, this opportunity to look into your word. I do thank you for it. I thank you that you've preserved it so perfectly for us that we can trust every word within it. And I do pray that our hearts and our minds would be open to your truth now. I pray for the work of your spirit within our lives. And I pray that he would be teaching us uh, your truths and giving us the grace Father, that we need to live those truths. Uh, bless me as I seek to share these truths with my brethren here. And Father, uh, hide me behind your cross that only Jesus would be glorified this morning. I pray this in his precious name. Amen. Okay, so last week we examined the importance of witnesses. And we looked at two specific witnesses and they were Moses and Elijah who appeared when Jesus was being glorified on that mountain. And we looked at how Moses and Elijah represented the law and the prophets and how the, the, both the law and the prophets prophesied about the coming of Christ and how also Christ fulfilled the law perfectly. So we saw that the testimony of those two things, the law said that Christ actually lived the only perfect life in the history of mankind, that he satisfied, that it had no finger to point at him. It couldn't accuse him of anything. So the law says, I've got nothing to say against you. And then the prophets gave us all these uh, prophecies and predictions about the coming of Christ and how he would live and who he would be, <clears throat> even to the point of where he would be born and how he would be born, uh, born of a virgin, that he'd be born in Bethlehem. He, it told us about his lineage. It told us about so many things about the life so that when he came, we had no excuse as, uh, as, uh, as people or those who had his word um, to say we didn't recognize him because we had a perfect description of who he would be, how he would come, and what he would look like. So we could really uh, recognize him. It should have been easy to recognize him, but the world didn't recognize him. Uh, in fact, uh, the Bible says that we, we took him and crucified him, and he was crucified at the hands of unjust men. 
But because of that unjustness or because of that injustice, sorry, I should say, um, that that sacrifice that he made was on behalf of the sins of the entire world. So even though a, a great evil was being perpetrated upon him uh, when he was crucified, that the blood that he shed and the death that he died would be the atoning sacrifice for mankind for all those who would put their faith in him. And as a, a sign, as a testimony that God the Father had received that uh, payment or that penalty and had accepted it, it was when Jesus rose on that third day that showed us that God the Father accepted the, the payment or the penalty that was paid on our behalf. Uh, Jesus demonstrated that he was the perfect Lamb of God, the spotless Lamb of God, and that sacrifice he, he did on our behalf. And then he rose again on the third day, and we know now that he ascended uh, to the Father after that, after he's showing himself to his disciples and many others uh, after he rose from the grave. Um, but he also demonstrated that he is the eternal, only begotten Son of God as well. So we saw that the, these two witnesses, Moses and Elijah, uh, were witnesses on that mountain. And they were pointing to the fact that Jesus was exactly who uh, Peter, James and John had already come to believe. He, they, he just verified or they verified that. And God the Father himself actually witnessed with a voice. And he said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him, listen to him. The transfiguration was a verification of who he was as the Son of God and the Messiah who was promised to come into the world. This was, we saw from the beginning, an edification or the building up or for the, the, the blessing of, of Peter, James and John, who had now come to understand or had now come to, or Jesus was beginning to tell them that he would now, instead of uh, coming to reign on the earth, and they'd be you know, at his right hand and his left hand, but he began to tell them uh, from this point that they, that they would suffer if they, were, they would uh, follow him, that their beloved Lord and Master would be rejected of men, betrayed by one of his own, and ultimately sentenced, sentenced to a terrible, terrible death um, by a corrupt trial, uh, and crucified as a common criminal. Today we will look at the question that the disciples uh, asked Jesus as they were coming down the mountain about Elijah. Um, there's a specific question they asked him, and we just read that uh, uh, already, and we'll look at that in detail. Next week, as I've mentioned, we will look at the role that Moses and Elijah will have in the future. So at, just as they, they came and presented themselves to Jesus, the, to Jesus and these three uh, disciples, they were on that mountain. The Bible tells us that in the future, during the tribulation period, during the time when God will judge the earth, that Moses and Elijah will indeed return again. And we can look at that scripture as well uh, next week and go through all the details, because I know many of you are uh, very interested in that and why they are Moses and Elijah and, uh, and how that's going to work out. But just to give us a bit of a recap, so Moses lived about 1,300 years before Jesus, and Elijah lived around roughly 900 to 1,000 years before. Both of these individuals existed during critical times of uh, Israel's history. Moses was called by the Lord, if you remember, to deliver his people who were in bondage 
in Egypt. Uh, they were in slavery, um, and he was used greatly by the Lord, uh, performing many, many miracles. And Elijah was also called of God to help free his people, to show them that they also were in bondage, even though they were in their own homeland. In fact, they were in bondage um, to false gods that they were led to worship, and they had succumbed to to these lies and worshipping false gods that their leaders themselves had encouraged them to do. So as <clears throat> so these are the two individuals we're talking about, and specifically one of them, because as the disciples are now so Jesus has he's not no more shining, he's he's uh, the he's faded down to the normal uh, man that they were used to seeing. Uh, and the Bible says they were coming down off that mountain. And as they were walking down off that mountain, the disciples must have been full of questions. I'm sure that they, they didn't have every question answered that they, could, uh, that they had while they were up there. But one of the questions they asked specifically was about the role of Elijah and what the Bible said about him concerning the coming of the Messiah. So we're going to have a look at that one in detail today. But I want you to first focus on what Jesus told them um, as they were coming down, as this uh, event, this amazing event, actually came to a conclusion in Matthew 17, 9. And it says in Matthew 17, 9, And as they came down from the mountain, Jesus charged them. He gave them a command. He said, listen to me carefully, saying, Tell the vision to no man until the Son of Man be risen again from the dead. So Jesus gave them a strict command. Don't tell anyone else until I am risen again from the grave so the question might come to mind when you look at this the first thing that might come to mind is why did jesus tell them to keep it secret until after he was risen again from the grave well there probably a number of good reasons for that and rest assured jesus had the very good reasons for doing it and and though we are we might provide some conjecture or or guesses educated guesses about what they might be. Um, Jesus knew exactly why he was doing it because he knew all things and knows all things. <clears throat> but what this tells me first and foremost is that Jesus knew the heart of his disciples. He knew the men that he was with. He'd already been with them for a while and he uh, he knew their hearts. So he knew exactly what he was telling them. Um, the others... Remember that he'd asked three of them to come up, but not all of them. These three, I suspect, were the ones who uh, were showing leadership uh, to, the, to the rest of the group. They were looked up to by the rest of the group. And these are the ones who probably had taken further burdens upon themselves in order to be a blessing to the, to the other uh, nine in the actual group. Um, they understood, these other ones, that Jesus had taken these three up to a mountain to pray with him. Do you remember the original thing that, uh, that he brought them up for? He said, come on, let's go up and pray. And, and the Bible says that while they were praying, this event actually happened. So they, the other disciples probably understood, well, they've gone up to a mountain to pray with Jesus. Uh, but they didn't know that this was going to happen. Those three didn't understand either or didn't know either. <clears throat> um, so we look at, we look at the, the, these particular three and sometimes... It looks as if Jesus is favouring these three, but I suspect that these three uh, were showing themselves to be leaders within the group. And if you look at it, um, Peter is the first one to announce. And often Peter speaks on behalf of the group uh, uh, many times. 
Uh, he doesn't always speak the right things, and sometimes he puts his foot in it, and sometimes he, he makes mistakes. But it would seem that Peter is more of a leader in the group than James and John. If you remember, on that walk to later on, on that walk to Jerusalem, um, where their mother got involved in it, um, there was a desire for them to be sitting at the left and the right hand of Christ. They wanted to be leaders uh, for the Lord. So it looks as if these three um, were the leaders of this specific group of the 12. Um, and the rest of them probably understood that. They probably understood that Jesus had to spend extra time with these guys uh, to encourage them to actually build them up because leaders normally bear greater burdens than the rest. Okay, um, And it would seem um, that their faith was stronger than the rest as well. So it would seem that Jesus not only considered them ready to see this vision that he was uh, to have with them, but they were also mature enough and ready enough to carry this information with them without sharing it with others until the right time. And this is actually what they did. So Jesus gave them this responsibility. Uh, and carrying information without letting anyone else know uh, is oftentimes a, um, is a difficult thing to do. And Jesus probably knew that if, if they had come down off the mountain and, you know, and Peter, James and John you know, were, were come down and said, oh, guess who we saw? We saw Elijah. We saw Moses. We had a chat with them. We, we did all this sort of stuff. The other, the other ones probably may have, uh, because they weren't mature enough already to accept it, may have even become jealous. And maybe a rift may have even been caused between them. So the question is, what, what does it mean for us? What does it mean for us if he's actually told them, just hold this information until the right time in the future? Well, there are certain things that the Lord has his children know um, because he knows they can bear the knowledge. Okay? And, and he will use it, uh, and they will use it in a way to encourage others at the right time. Uh, we do the same for our own children. Okay? We shield them from... Uh, we wanted them shielded from certain information that they may not be ready to deal with uh, at a young age or if they're not mature enough to, uh, to handle that information or to use it widely, so, wisely. So we hold back sometimes uh, information from people who just don't need to hear it uh, and who may not be able to handle it or understand it in ministry. And I speak about myself and I understand that there are, in my conversations with other pastors and people who are in privileged positions and positions of, of, of service uh, to the brethren, we are often exposed to information that other people don't have in certain cases. Um, some of this information is personal. Some of it is very sensitive. Uh, others is, is, is difficult to, to deal with. Um, Still other information may be given to us by the Lord that we need to be careful about how we use it, in, that we will use it in the right manner. Uh, and this is not something that's just to hold information or to, or to, um, uh, or to pretend as if I, we know more. It's got nothing to do with that because holding information and not sharing it with everyone uh, is, a, is a burden uh, with, uh, with this information. And especially, I mean... Oftentimes, people come and share personal things uh, with us, and the last thing we're ever going to do is share that information with other people. We know certain things, and we would never break that uh, that privilege or that uh, that bond uh, of trust 
that we have with people who come and share their burdens with us. It would be inappropriate to do that, but it's also sometimes inappropriate to just blurt out everything that we know with everyone all at the same time. Not everyone is able to already to handle that information. John chapter 16, verse 12 the Lord says the same thing to his disciples, even even uh, at the Last Supper and just before he's about um, to be crucified. John chapter 16, verse 12 says, I have yet many things to say unto you. So Jesus had already told them some amazing things in his conversations with them. But he says at the end of that verse, of verse 12, that ye cannot bear them now. You're just not ready to accept it. I mean, there are, there are things that we learn in life that are built upon other things. Uh, I'm not sure if you, uh, you remember your old school days, uh, but you don't learn sentences before you learn the alphabet. And it's the same thing with, uh, with Christianity. It's the same thing with the Word of God. You learn always the basics first. That's why we do discipleship first. Discipleship, and the reason to do discipleship and the benefit from it is that you learn the basics first and then upon those basics you build upon that knowledge. But if you don't have the foundation in place first, then trying to build with the stuff on top underneath actually may cause you problems because you haven't properly understood the basics first. Um, thus in God's eyes and Jesus is verifying this on every bit of information that we come to learn in our walk with the Lord is often a good idea to share with everyone um, it, it's, it takes wisdom sometimes to share the right information at the right time because not everyone is ready to receive the information or to receive everything that we know it takes discernment um, with the knowledge we obtain and the Apostle Paul teaches the same so if you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 1 Corinthians chapter 3 verses 1 and 2. Peter, sorry, Paul is speaking to uh, uh, the disciples, speaking to the believers in, in Corinth. And he's saying, you're not ready. You're not ready for me to share everything with you, the depth of knowledge that I have, because you just can't, you can't wear it. You haven't got the basics right first. Look what he says here. Um, he says in uh, verse 1 of 1 Corinthians chapter 3, And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, which means you're still more fleshly than you are spiritual, even as unto babes in Christ. Now that's a lovely way of saying you're still babies. You're still infants. In verse 2 it says, I fed you with milk, which means I've given you the basics, and not with meat, and not with the detailed stuff, for hitherto, for up to this point, you were not able to bear it. And look what he says at the end. Neither yet now are ye able. So he's, so in a rebuke to the Corinthians, he says, you know what, I'd love to give you meat. But the problem is, with the milk that I've given you already, you're barely able to bear that uh, and put that into practice. You see, uh, part of a, uh, of a teacher's responsibility when it comes to teaching the Word of God is to teach people the important things first. But if they never get off the ground, if they never put those things into practice, then giving them more and more and more knowledge, the Bible says, just puffs them up. So unless they put those things into practice, there's a danger that they will become proud and arrogant because of what they know. And this is the responsibility that every teacher has. People in responsibility are often called to carry the burden of having information that they, they just can't share with everyone. 
only when the time is right. And this is what Jesus wanted for the, these three disciples to hold on to this information. Not that he was going to keep it secret, but he wanted to hold on to it so that it would benefit the most amount of people at the right time. The benefit would be the greatest when they had seen Jesus rise. And let's see, just to, just to put things in context, a little bit more context, because context is so important. Uh, let's see what Mark says about uh, this. So if you go to Mark chapter 9, verse 10, I want you to understand something. So let's see what Mark uh, chapter 9, verse 10 observes about their response to the vision that they had. It would seem that this waiting time was as much for them to be able to digest what they had seen um, so that that might be a blessing to others. Because if they shared stuff that they just didn't know properly themselves, uh, it may have caused more harm than good. Um, and maybe the Lord wanted them to hum become humble as well during that time too. Um, that was all coming to grips with what they were seeing and what the resurrection actually meant. Look at Mark 9.10. It says, And they kept that saying with themselves. So they obeyed what the Lord had said, questioning one with another, what the rising from the dead should mean. They, Jesus had told them. And the discussion, do you remember, that, that Jesus and Moses and Elijah were having was with respect to his death, burial and resurrection in Jerusalem. And that what would come to pass. Peter, James and John are saying, resurrection? What, what is that? Like, all right, we can see, you know, uh, uh, Elijah and Moses here, and they're like in a glorified sort of sense. But what does resurrection actually mean? So they were struggling with this whole thing. They were questioning among themselves, what does this resurrection actually mean? What is Jesus talking about here? Um, it would seem that Peter, James and John were best placed to share what they had seen only after Jesus had risen from the grave. And they themselves could properly understand what it uh, meant before they shared it with others. I'm not sure if you, um, if you recall, Peter, uh, at that Last Supper, you know, Jesus basically said, you're all going to deny me. You're all going to, to run away. And Peter said, no way, not me, Lord. I'm going to stand firm. I, I will never deny you. I will never betray you. And Jesus says, well, you're going to deny me three times before the cock crows. And Peter I don't know whether he believed that at that particular time, but it was only after Peter actually um, had denied Jesus three times that he actually broke down. And maybe it was at that particular time, or Peter had to go through that to be humbled enough to share this information with uh, his brethren when Jesus actually rose from the grave. You see, God allows us to go through certain experiences in life uh, in order to learn the, the information that he gives us. Let's continue with these disciples' question. Remember, um, the Lord teaches us through his word. And you may read certain passages a number of times. Now, we, most of us have read the Bible multiple times in our lives. And, and, and I know that you understand, for those of you who read the word of God, you understand what I'm talking about. Where You may have read this particular passage, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, maybe eight times. Who knows how many times you've read it? And then all of a sudden, you read it this next time, and it hits you. All of a sudden, you get it. Something clicks into place. Um, and the Lord reveals the depth of that passage to you. 
Well, he does that at the best possible time for you. But it will always be the time when you're able to digest it and to understand it, when you're mature enough to use it. So God gives us more knowledge through his word as he deems fit for us. Maybe there needs to be an experience that we need to go through in our lives in order for help us in order to help us to actually um, appreciate that truth, that we might use that truth in the right way, um, maybe to be a blessing to others. We need to remind ourselves that not only is the Word of God pure, but the depth of knowledge that it has, you can learn, read the Bible, learn it your entire life, and God will continue to teach you from it. Because God is continuing, based on your maturity, to give you more and more depth in it. And I'm not sure if you remember, but Jesus basically said that if you believe, okay, if you do it, if you do what he says, you will come to believe it even more. That's a, it's a pretty uh, basic teaching that Jesus had. Do it and you will believe it more. You will believe it and understand it more once you've done it. So... When it comes to our faith, it's the doing that is actually, I want to say more important than the knowing because you can't do it without knowing, but it's its vitally important that we do and we obey the word of God. And it's in that way that God gives us even more because in maturing in the Lord, we are then able to absorb more because we use it properly. Let's continue with the disciples' question. Uh, let's remember, they had just seen Moses and Elijah and in Matthew chapter 17, verses 10 to 13, it says there, let's read it again. And his disciples asked him saying, why then say that the scribes, and the scribes were the pretty learned people of their day. They were the ones who, who wrote uh, the Bible, who recorded, who, uh, who would actually copy it. Um, why then say the scribes that Elias or Elijah, it's another word, way of saying Elijah, must first come? And Jesus answered and said unto them, Elias truly shall first come and restore all things. But I say unto you that Elias is come already. And they knew him not, which means they didn't recognize him, but have done unto him whatsoever they listed. They did to him whatever they wanted. Likewise shall also the Son of Man suffer of them. So what they did to John the Baptist was make him suffer. Verse 13 says, then, then the disciples understood that he spake unto them of John the Baptist. So Jesus immediately equates John the Baptist with Elijah's coming. He did not refute the teaching of Elijah having to first come, but he said that he actually had come in the person of John the Baptist, or at least in the spirit of uh, John the Baptist came in the spirit and the power of Elijah in that specific role. He said that the, they not only didn't recognize who he was, but they ended up killing him as a result. And, uh, and most of you would already understand that uh, Herod, he was taken uh, prisoner by Herod, and then he was uh, killed as a result of that. Uh, and Jesus then says that the same thing would happen to him by the same people. The same apostle, John, that went up that mountain would later record um, or echo those words that Jesus taught them here. He shared the very thing concerning the mountaintop vision that Jesus was transfigured, that he was the light of the world. He, he talked about John's role, John the Baptist's role, and how the world would not only reject John the Baptist, but he, that would reject 
Jesus as the Messiah as well. Turn to John chapter 1, verses 1 to 10 with me, um, and we'll have a look at that. Excuse me. It's a better. I had a bit of uh, sunlight right in my eye. Okay, John chapter 1, verse 1, the Gospel of John. Now, this is the same John that went up that mountain. It says there, In the beginning was the Word. Most of you are very familiar with these words, words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same, He was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness darkness comprehended it not. Now let's stop there. That is speaking about Jesus. Jesus is the Word of God. Jesus was not only with God, but he was God, and he is God. It says the same was in the beginning with God, and all things were made by him. And there is not one thing that was made in the entire created universe that wasn't made by him. And the Bible says that in him was life and the life was the light of men. And that light shines in the darkness and men struggle to, and the darkness doesn't comprehend it. It doesn't recognize it, okay? Let's continue because we're speaking about Jesus as the word of God. It says there in verse six now, there was a man sent from God, another man now, whose name was? John, not the Apostle John here, but John the Baptist. The same came for a witness, to be witness of the light, that all men through him might believe. So John was sent to testify, to give a witness that this is the light that's come into the world. He was not that light, verses 8, this John the Baptist, he wasn't that light, but was sent to be a witness of that light. And your Bibles will have capital L there, because it's referring to Jesus. That was, verse 9, the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. And look at this. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. Okay? And it says in the next verse that they received him not. John the Baptist. And no, for those of you who are listening to um, this this sermon, or maybe a new to a, a Baptist church. No, Baptist did not start with John the Baptist. Okay, <clears throat> some some people uh, had this uh, interesting idea that Baptist started with John the Baptist. No, um, neither does the Baptist church go back to John the Baptist because John the Baptist was the last prophet of the Old Testament before the church began. So there is no Baptist church going back to John the Baptist. John the Baptist was called a Baptist because he baptized in the River Jordan. And Baptists today are called Baptists because it was a slang or derogatory term that was given to them um, later on, much later, um, uh, during the, the Reformation period, because we didn't agree, not with the Catholic Church and not with the Protestants either, because we were rebaptizing people because we didn't believe in infant baptism at that stage. So we're talking about the 1300s um, when the Baptist was originally called Baptist Church, although we, as people who believe in the Word of God, have always existed, sometimes under different names. 
just to give you a bit of a historical background there. But John the Baptist came as a witness of that light, the light of Jesus. Both he and Jesus would be rejected and killed. John came as the one who would prepare the way for Jesus, just as the scriptures had foretold. But the scriptures also foretold that the Messiah would be rejected of men. So look at Isaiah chapter 53, verse 3. It's a familiar uh, passage um, that many of us are familiar, uh, acquainted with. Um, and it says that this Messiah who would come into the world would be rejected by his own people and that the life he lived would be one of rejected. Look at verse 3 of Isaiah chapter 53. It says he is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. And this is a perfect picture of what Jesus experienced when he came to the earth as the light, as the word of God. Mankind rejected him. And they rejected the messenger who came before him to testify of him. And that was John the Baptist. But let's look at why. Why did the Jews reject Jesus as the Messiah? Well, let's have a look at, turn with me to Malachi. Malachi chapter 4. And we're going to understand why it is they believed Elijah would come before uh, the Lord was supposed to come. So let's have a bit of a look at that. But what's interesting is that sometimes people misread the Bible and they end up fulfilling it in the way that they didn't intend to fulfill it because they didn't read it properly. Um, if you look at Malachi chapter 4, it says, For behold, chapter 4 verses, we'll read that verses 1 to 6 so we get the context. For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. That means burnt, crisp. And the day shall, shall cometh that burn, uh, shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, and it shall leave them neither root nor branch. That tree is going to be destroyed. But unto you that fear my name shall the son of righteousness arise with healing in his wings and shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. And he shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, saith the Lord of hosts. Remember ye the law of Moses my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb, that's the Mount Sinai, for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. Behold, now this is the specific verse. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to, the fa to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Now look at that. They were looking at this specific passage, which says that Elijah would come before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. When the Jews were waiting for their Messiah, they were waiting for this great and dreadful day of the Lord. That's what they were waiting for. And they knew that Elijah was going to come first. They were waiting for this, um, this, uh, uh, this uh, Messiah, this promised one, this Christ, would come and free them from the oppression that they were under by the Roman government. Remember that they were the Rome had occupied Israel and they they believed that he would come as a great and conquering hero and restore all things and everything will be put back in place and sorted out. What they didn't understand is that 
that their hearts had to be ready to receive their king before this would happen. Elijah would come, but not in the way they expected it would come. Um, They were looking for this all-conquering king that would come. But now we know that this conquering king is yet to come. You see, this is what we call the second coming of Christ. The first coming of Christ was as a lamb. The second coming of Christ will be as this lion. And Elijah will indeed come again before that. And the book of Revelation tells us that. But when Jesus came the first time, when the Son of God came the first time, he came as a lamb. He came to redeem the entire world of sin. Now let's look at more closely at what Isaiah now says about this. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 1. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 1 because Isaiah now speaks of the one who was going to prepare the way for this Messiah to come and it says in Isaiah chapter 40 verse 1 comfort ye comfort ye my people saith God your God speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem speak peace speak nice words and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished the days of war are over that her iniquity is pardoned, her sins have been forgiven her, for she hath received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. She's gotten all the, uh, all the punishment that she deserved. Verse 3, And the voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. All right, now what's this have to do with Elijah? Well, this was the promise and the offer to Israel, uh, and it was their opportunity for them to be redeemed back to God. No, things weren't right between God and Israel. And they knew that. Things were not right. Their sins had not been fully forgiven. They were not at peace with God. And Jesus, and it comes really out when Jesus is speaking to and interacts with the leaders of Israel during that time, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes. Jesus has arguments with all of them because they were all arrogant. They all missed the point of, of, of his word. They didn't have peace with God. They were, they were running their own show at that time. But the Bible says that this voice of one crying in the wilderness is saying, prepare the way of the Lord. Prepare yourselves for him. Make, a, make straight the path for him so he can just come straight in without hindrance. They were to make their paths straight before he arrived because they were preparing for the arrival of God himself. John the Baptist was the voice of one crying in that wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now what's he talking about here? He's talking about doing major roadworks or construction. We need to be elevating you know, valleys and, and flattening out the mountains and, and making everything flat on the earth. No, 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 this is not talking about any construction here. He's not talking about making roads or, or doing anything like that or to, or to make some sort of a highway. What this is talking about is ha- making your heart right to receive God, is to have the right attitude towards God, 
Prepare the way for God to come into your heart. Think of the, look at the pictures here. Valleys, those dark valleys. Uh, be exalted, are lifted up. Dark valleys, those places in the heart that are dark need to be elevated to come into the light. Mountains or hills which are high, which speak about a sense of pride and arrogance need to be made low, need to be humbled. Crooked paths need to be made straight, which means live a straight life. Don't don't be like a, a crooked person. Actually, we still call criminals crooks today. God wanted us to prepare our hearts to receive him. The rough places made plain and flat, smooth, so he can come straight into our hearts. It was when they were ready would the glory of God be revealed, but they were not. They did not prepare themselves because they didn't think that the problem was theirs. They thought the problem was out there. They thought the problem was with the Roman government. They thought the problem was with, with everyone else, with all the heathen in the world and all sort of stuff. No, there was no problem with them. They were waiting for someone to come and rescue them and say, oh, see, great work, guys. A pat on the back for you for sticking it out. They didn't realize that God wanted them sorted out first to receive him in their hearts first. But the same thing happens today. Everyone points the finger at everyone else. It's always everyone else's problem. But this is what John the Baptist was endeavouring to do, to prepare them for their coming king. Yet they killed both he and Jesus, which meant they weren't ready for it. But you know what? God knew that already. That's why he prophesied this way. That's why in the Bible there are two versions of this Messiah coming. One was suffering and the other one was glorious. Because there were two different times. God knew that they reject him the first time. That their hearts were not ready for him. Turn to Matthew chapter 3 verse 1 with me. As we look at a more detailed look at John the Baptist. And the message that he was delivering. Matthew chapter 3 verse 1. Says in those days came John the Baptist. Preaching in the wilderness of Judea. And saying repent ye for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he that was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah, remember the one we just read? Saying, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And the same John had his raiment of camel's hair and a leathern girdle uh, about his loins and his meat, the food that he ate, was locusts and wild honey. How do you prepare for the coming of the Lord? How do we prepare for the coming of the Lord? Well, the same way. Because God's not concerned about your outward appearance. He wasn't concerned about John's outward appearance, wearing camel hair and eating, and eating locusts and honey. It's about your heart. And it's the same thing that Jesus spoke about when he speaks about the parable of the sower and the seed. You see, the seed is all the same. The truth of God is all the same. But the question is the soil that it's landing on. Because some soil is rocky. Some soil is flat and hard like a pathway. Other soil is filled with the, with the weeds. There's only one type of soil that is able, where the seed is able to penetrate the ground and grow and bear fruit. And that speaks of the small number of people whose hearts are ready to receive God, to receive his truth, to humble themselves before him and to say, no, God, you're right. This represents the hearts of most people 
If the heart is not ready to receive the word of God, the truths of God, if you haven't humbled yourself before God, if you are proud or arrogant, you cannot receive the things that he wants for you. You simply can't. And they didn't. In order to receive this king who humbled himself as well, you must do as John preached. Repent. Because without repentance, there is no salvation. And what's repentance? Well, you agree with God. You see yourself as God sees you, not some fake image you make of yourself or I make of myself. It's repentance means you're admitting that God is God, that he has the right to tell you exactly what you're like. And he alone, that he alone has the right over your life, that he created you. And as your creator, you're, you are, you owe it to him. And you begin to trust his word. That's what repentance is. You acknowledge that you are the true problem, that you're the problem, that I'm the problem, not him. I, see, I can't count how many people point the finger at God for every struggle we have in this world, for every, all the racism and all the murders and all the deaths and the, and, the, and the hatred and the bigotry and everything else that goes on. It's amazing how many people point the finger at God and say, God, it's your fault. Really? Did God call for this? No, he doesn't. It's us who makes our bed and we sleep in it. To repent means I agree with God. I agree with his assessment of me. You acknowledge that you and I acknowledge that I, I'm the problem. My fallen nature is the problem. And the sin that comes from that nature is the problem. You agree with God that sin is bad. Not that it's good. That it breaks God's law and breaks his heart. And is against his moral standard. You realize that you should hate it the same way that he hates it. You understand that you're not able to either save yourself from it or from the consequences of it. You realize that you deserve hell. That's repentance. Genuine biblical repentance is understanding you're a sinner and you're guilty. And you're saying, God, I agree with you. And you know what? You've, you said you hate that stuff. I'm going to hate it too. Because I want to see it from your side rather than seeing it from mine. In admitting this, you realize that you can only place your hope in Jesus to save you, that you can't save yourself. You have neither the will nor the power or ability to save yourself from this evil disease. If corona, the coronavirus is killing people, sin is a more dreadful disease. It kills 100% of people that it infects, unless you are saved by Jesus Christ. This is the gospel. This is Christianity. And this is what most people fail to recognize. The problem with this world is the same problem that Jesus encountered in his day. The world has not changed. We haven't gotten any better. Look at what's going on around us. The same problem that has existed since the fall is still inherent in man. And doesn't matter how many laws you put or how many laws governments put in place, the problem is not with the outward conformity, but it's the inward degradation. People are not willing to agree with God because they're proud and arrogant. They don't want to admit their own guilt and turn to him for salvation because they want to save themselves if there's any saving to do. They want to do it on their own terms. Men the world over, men and women the world over, are still not ready to receive this king. They're not willing to bow down the knee to him. 
because they have a king already in their heart and that's themselves. Their hearts are close to him and this is what John the Baptist discovered. And unfortunately, this is the same problem that many Christians still struggle with in their lives. Yes, they may have invited Jesus to come into their hearts. They may have received with joy this gospel that saves you. But the problem then is that they begin to act and continue to act like children, not maturing into adults. And they live the rest of their Christian lives as children, as babes. And like the Apostle Paul says, I can't speak to you as spiritual, but as carnal, even as unto babes, babies in Jesus. Yeah, you're in Jesus, but you know what? You're behaving like children. That's what Alan was speaking about before. Like lemon Christians, people with hang-ups, people with, who aren't moving on with their life, who have everything for the rest of eternity all sorted out, but yet are so, so problematic, have so many problems in this world, which is only temporary, that they're behaving like children rather than mature adults. The challenge to us as Christians is that once we're saved, what we do with the Word of God, there's much learning that takes place in this world, and I see it. A lot of people have their head filled with much knowledge. A lot of that knowledge I probably wouldn't want them to have because they're learning it in the wrong places or from the wrong places. But it's what you do with that knowledge that makes all the difference. When you take the Word of God and you dissect it properly and you use it properly, that's what God wants you to do. He wants you to live as a mature Christian, taking the truth and living it with love, believing in it, but applying it properly. And there are many Christians who struggle with that transition, taking the truth of the Word of God and using them wisely. The people of his day struggled as well. Yeah, Jesus says that, that the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and those people had a lot of knowledge about the Word of God, but yet they failed to recognize how to use it properly. Use the Word of God properly. Be mature in the Lord. Behave like an adult when it comes to the things of God. We should be the most mature and godly people on the planet. I say this to our shame. I see too many Christians behaving more like children than like adults. And if we look at the scriptures here, you realize that John the Baptist would have been that Elijah, preparing the hearts of people for the coming king. If they had simply accepted him, he was preparing the way for the Messiah, but instead they did not. And Herod had him murdered. Look at what Jesus said about John the Baptist. Let's look at that specifically. Matthew chapter 11, verse 7. Matthew chapter 11, verse 7. It says there, And as they departed, Jesus began to say unto the multitudes concerning John. So Jesus was teaching people about John the Baptist. He says, What went ye out into the wilderness to see? What did you go out to see? A reed shaken with the wind? But what were you out to see? A man clothed in soft raiment, in soft clothes, in, in, in luxurious clothes? Behold, they that wear soft clothing are in king's houses. 
But what went ye out to see? For to see a prophet? Yea, I say unto you, and more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it was written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. Verily I say unto you, Among them that are born of women, there is not risen a greater than John the Baptist, notwithstanding, he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now that's the dissection between the New Testament and the Old. John, up to that point, was the greatest person who had been born according to God's standard on the earth. The greatest, the greatest prophet. There is not one born of women greater than he. Yet, the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. There is a dissection here. Because when the church started, the church is the bride of Christ. The church is a different entity than John the Baptist. We'll look at that a little bit more next week. But Jesus clearly identified John the Baptist as the ones concerning the, the one who be preparing the way for the Christ, for the Messiah. He's the one, he says, he's going to prepare the message. I will send my messenger before my face, which shall prepare the way for thee. But he rebukes them. He says, what did you go out? What did you think you were going out to see here? Yeah, John is a pretty rugged guy. The guy's got a, a, a coat of camel hair. He's got his big leather belt around his, uh, about his waist. He speaks, when you listen to the words that he speaks to, uh, to these, these guys, to, when, he's, when he interacts with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and he speaks pretty plainly. He doesn't mince his words. He's a pretty rugged guy. And you know what? Last time I checked, uh, none of us were eating uh, locusts and honey uh, for breakfast. The scriptures say that he wasn't exactly what they were expecting. Would be the preparing for the, the one who'd be preparing for the coming uh, king of Israel. You know what? In someone who comes and prepares the way for the king, you know, he should be highly educated. He should be wealthy and powerful. He should be associated with this king. He should be respected within the Jewish community. And Jesus said, what did you go out to see? Like someone who was dressed like, a, like in royalty? Someone who was a reed, like a very fine person, who'd be very shaken. No, no, you, you, what you got was a, was a guy who was in the middle of the wilderness with a, with a big flowing beard, dressed in camel hair and eating locusts. No, we don't want him really. He doesn't really fit the image of what we think that person should be, God. That people with, people are filled with excuses for not doing what's right. We do it all the time. We, instead of listening to John and listening to the message that he had to say, they looked at him from the outside and said, now this guy doesn't match the image of what I have for this fellow. And so they made an excuse. Excuses, excuses. But we do the same today. Yeah, John wasn't dressed right. He wasn't dressed the way he should. You know, he wasn't really educated. The guy didn't really go to university. Why would I listen to him for? He's not educated. You know, he offended me with his cuisine. You know, I, I don't mind if he'd had, you know, a, a rump steak, but he's eat, the guy's eating locusts. I'm not going to listen to someone like that. He didn't say nice words. I heard him tell off those, uh, those Pharisees. I respect that guy. That guy was my uh, 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 pastor there. He's told him off. He called him a viper. He called him a snake. I can't listen to someone like that. He doesn't look right to me, that guy. There's something quite wrong with him. You know, he made me go out to the middle of the wilderness to hear this message. The middle of the wilderness. You know how far I have to walk to go, to go to that? And he didn't even offer me any bread. He didn't offer me anything. 
If he really cared, he'd come properly dressed, talk nicely, dress nicely, and come to where I am. And in rejecting him, they rejected Jesus at the same time. Jesus didn't come himself like a royal king. He didn't come dressed in, 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 in royal robes. No, the Bible says that he emptied himself of everything that he had in heaven. He came to this earth and was born in a stable. God humbled himself and wanted to show us how we should be humble. Because if he can humble himself and wash his disciples' feet, that's the type of people that God is looking for. So they didn't recognize John the Baptist as Elijah and they didn't recognize Jesus. And John himself, in John 1, 19 says, um, when they asked him, when the priests uh, came to him, when the Jews uh, sent the priests, the Levites from Jerusalem and said, well, who are you? He says, I'm not the Christ. Are you? They said, are you the Christ? He goes, I'm not the Christ. Well, so who are you? And are you Elijah? I'm not Elijah. Who are you, a prophet? No. Well, who are you then? He says, I'm the, one of one, I'm the one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. Prepare your hearts for him. It's very important that we understand that, every, that everything was in place for Jesus to be the king of Israel. But their hearts weren't ready for it. They rejected him. They rejected his weakness. They rejected him and they rejected the kingdom of God that was given to them on a silver platter. They had all the excuses when it came to John the Baptist and when it came to Jesus. When they found out that he was living in Nazareth, a little town, not in Jerusalem, well, how can anything good come out of Nazareth? No, we can't listen to this guy. What's he talking about? He's, he's talking against the, uh, the temple. What's wrong with uh, selling stuff in the temple? What's wrong with people making a bit of money in there? How dare he flip over tables like that? That's not very uh, nice. They used every excuse and found every excuse not to believe in him. They did it with Jesus, but we do it today. We do the same thing today. And we need to be very careful about the excuses that we offer for not obeying God, for not looking out for one another, for not loving as we're supposed to, for not being patient and forgiving and merciful and kind and faithful. We're full of excuses. We need to be careful that we don't fall into that same hole. Be careful that if you've now accepted Christ as your saviour, you think, oh, I've done that repenting part. That's all done now. You know what? I'm saved now. That's not a problem at all. What are you talking about? How can you say that, that that's the beginning? That's the beginning of repentance. That's the beginning of faith, the beginning of belief. God wants you to now to live a life full of repentance and faith and belief. He wants you to continually look at it from his angle, not your, not your old nature. He's planted a new nature within you. But it seems to me as if so many Christians aren't feeding the old nature, they're still feeding the old. And then they wonder why their lives aren't going well. Think about where John was in the wilderness. Where was he baptizing? In the Jordan. What's significant about the Jordan? The Jordan is the cross point is the middle way between the wilderness where Israel was stuck for 40 years and the promised land. John is preaching, get ready in the wilderness, get ready 
for those of you who are walking around in circles in your life in the middle of a desert. Come to the water, make your decision and then cross over into that promised land, which is salvation and live in the promised land. Don't go back over the water living in the wilderness again. There is a peace. There is a rest for the people of God if we would look for it and if we would obey. We've been called to do the same to this world today. Just as John the Baptist called everyone to repentance and to choose Christ as their saviour and to receive him as their king, we're called the same. We are the John the Baptist of this day. For those of you who have repented and received Christ as your saviour, You live in a world that is no less of a wilderness than John was living in and preached in. The world is a spiritually, the world we live in today is a spiritually barren place. Men's hearts are lifted up and proud. They are full of darkness. They do not recognize their own sin and guilt. Our role in this world is as John. It doesn't matter what you look like. doesn't matter what your past is. doesn't matter how educated you are. doesn't matter how lovely you speak. It doesn't matter. God has called you as a witness to this world. Even if they kill you. We are meant to be lights in a dark place. We are called to be the salt of the earth, the ambassadors to this world, the children of God amidst a generation that does not know God, who hates God. We are not called to be actors on a stage to receive adulation from our audience, but rather we are called to be warriors in the midst of a a deadly spiritual battle that rages for the souls of men. Let me ask you this morning, is your heart humbled before God? Are you ready for your king? Or did you receive your king a long time ago and then push him out again? Are you ready to receive his teaching? Be mature. Grow up in the Lord. Do not live as children. And remember the souls that are at stake. This is an eternal issue here because the way we live will affect the souls, the eternal souls of people around us. There is no time to waste for this thing. Yeah, I see people in this world, they get upset when when people don't practice social distancing. They get offended when people don't wear the right, when, when people are shaking hands, holding too much, and the news makes big, big stories about stuff where people don't do the right thing, huh? Because they, they're saying, you're putting someone else's life at risk. Well, Christian, are you putting other people's lives at risk? How are you living your life? Are you doing the right thing for their benefit, for the sake of their soul? Your soul's saved. You're comfortable. You've got everything sorted out. God has called us to live lives of faith and maturity because there are souls at stake. And we are the ones that God has called to prepare the way for Jesus. The the next, understand this, the next time Jesus comes will be judgment upon this earth. Our job will be finished, complete, all over. What part will will you have played in that? What part? What will you present before your king? during those seven years on this earth will go through absolute torment. God bless you. God keep you. Grow in faith. Trust in Jesus. Trust in his word and live it. God bless you all. See you next week.